morning, I'm going to be preaching about evangelism, really. And for the next several months, about once a month, set aside a Sunday to preach on the work of the gospel and what we can hope for and be praying for as the days approach where we will be working hard to take the gospel out into the community uh, with Christianity Explored. And I want us to be united in this as a church, both in the work of it and in the prayer for it. And so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4 this morning. And next Sunday, which is the Sunday after New Year's, I'll be preaching more of a New Year's sermon. And today, kind of as the bridge between, we will be talking about this. So if you would turn to Colossians 4, I'm actually going to start reading in verse 2, not in verse 4, or not in verse 5. So Colossians 4, 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's ask God for his help this morning. Father, we pray that your word would be helpful to us and that you would plant it in our hearts and minds this morning. In Christ's name, amen. The... <laughs> I'm getting pretty good at this these days. What do I do with my sermon? <laughs> huh? Thank you, brother. You guys would have been in for a trip this morning. I know it looks like I normally have no idea what I'm doing up here, but I actually do have notes usually that somewhat keep me on track. Without them, we'd be real lost. Um, we won't be doing communion this morning uh, because I have that cold, and I want to get you guys a cold this morning from passing out those elements, so we'll save that for next week. So here in the book of Colossians, you have Paul writing to them, and he's in prison, right? He's in Rome, imprisoned, waiting for his appointment with Caesar, uh, and he's there on account of the gospel, preaching the gospel. And we always ought to keep these sorts of things in mind whenever we're reading some of these letters that Paul wrote from prison, because the context is suffering, always suffering for the sake of the gospel. And uh, you see it very clearly in things like, good morning, things like uh, the book of Second Timothy, where he links the gospel and suffering over and over and over and says, Timothy, be a good man for the gospel and suffer for it. Uh, see how I suffer for the gospel. Imitate me in suffering for the gospel. And I bring this up because we, we tend to think that we are exempt from this sort of suffering, because we don't live in a day when you can be imprisoned for the preaching of the gospel. Now, you can probably take me to task for X, Y, or Z person or church has been in trouble for something tangent to the gospel. And that's true. Um, There are always times when people are persecuted more intensely in our country for standing up for their faith. Um, But in general, um, you're probably not going to get locked down 
for talking to someone about the gospel in a Walmart. It's just not going to happen. Um, and so we, we tend to think that we have no enemies. We have no one who is actually against the gospel because we don't see any enforcement of gospel hatred uh, directly. It's all kind of ethereal. It's outside us. It's in bigger ways that aren't direct. And so we tend to talk about <clears throat> gospel witness that's being supplanted and, and pressed down because of uh, uh, like the machine of the political world or the mass media of the world. And I don't want us to make that mistake. Um, the gospel is not a, a big thing that gets moved out of the way because of some machine like you know CNN or whatever your thing is that you think is just destroyed the gospel witness in the world. The gospel doesn't work like that. It's not some big thing in the air that can get shot down with missiles, whether they're verbal missiles or regular missiles. The gospel is personal. It always has been personal. It has never been a, a thing that can be taken out through politics. And you see that very clearly in the fact that the church was established in the midst of a politic that hated it. Paul was in prison for the gospel. And the politics of the day did not stop the gospel. Ever. They never have. The politics of the day do not matter to God in the scheme of what the gospel is able to do. And I want to say that because we, we, we live and die by the political cycles of our nation. We think, well, now that so-and-so is in power, now things will really happen. Or now that so-and-so is in power, now nothing can happen. And the reality is, neither one matter. In the grand scheme of things, the gospel is individual in a very real sense. So here Paul, in prison for the gospel, says, Continue steadfastly in prayer with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. Now, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called to suffer on his account, writer of half the New Testament, was calling on churches like the one at Colossae to pray for him. And what does he ask them to pray for? He asked them to pray for a door to preach the gospel for which he was in prison and clearness of speech now think about this. What do we think of Paul, the apostle, if not bold and clear? We think that was just who he was all the time without any need of prayer. We just think there are people in this world who constantly always are the ones who have perfect speech, perfect clarity, always find the door open. And we think Paul was the same way, that he just had gifts that we don't have and somehow... He could preach the gospel, and it was very clear and evident every single time he went out. But the reality is, Paul relied on prayer to make the gospel go out. It was personal. He was talking to people who knew him when he asked for prayer. He was saying, your prayers, particularly your prayers, matter. If the gospel is going to go forward, it's because you were praying that it would be open 
the gospel would go forth with clarity. Not because of me. And we see that kind of thing when he talks to the Corinthians and he rebukes them because they were saying, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul and I'm of Christ. And he says, listen, you, it's not the name brand that wins people. It's not the name brand. It's the gospel itself. And it comes through clarity of speech and open doors. And both of those things are miraculous things. Things that I cannot produce. Paul, the apostle, cannot produce those things. He can't do it. They're only given by prayer. And so I want us to be thinking of this as we think about the gospel going out and whether or not it relies on a certain man or woman. It does not. It doesn't matter if you have hired the most charismatic person in the entire world, if Billy Graham himself were the pastor here in Jasper, and there were no open doors, and there was no clarity of speech because of God, it would not matter one bit who was here. Not a single bit. The world didn't hear the gospel because of Billy Graham. The world heard the gospel because of prayer. That has always been the case. It will always be the case. And there is never a time when it is not the case. But we always forget that. Because we always put our hope in chariots and horses. We always see what we want to see. Which is this guy has it. And that guy doesn't. And so we're hitching our horses to that guy. That's where our wagon's going. And it happens over and over. On every level of stage. It could be at a small church like ours. Um, you could hire a guy with a young family thinking it will solve all the problems. <coughs> and it won't. Not without prayer. Not without open doors. Not without clear speech. We have to be dependent upon God. We have to be. And it wouldn't matter who it was. That was here in the pulpit, and it wouldn't matter who is there in the pews. It doesn't matter. Without open doors and clarity of speech, you could be the best salesman in the history of the world, and no one would buy what you're selling. Because God is the one who makes things clear, and God is the one who opens doors. And I want us to just absolutely ingest this deep within ourselves. Because... What we will think, if the end result is that no one comes through our doors, is that we need a different tactic, we need a different person, we need a different this, we need a, we need a different horse, we need a different captain, we need a different... The reality is we need more prayer all the time. If God is not moving, it is because prayer is lacking. And this has been the, the theme of God's people from the beginning. Uh, when you look at the whole history of man and what marks the people of God and what doesn't mark the people of God, the people of God are marked by contentedness, they're marked by love, and they're marked by prayer. Prayer. Over and over again, you see this call of God to return in prayer. Uh, the famous one from... Uh, Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will heal their land. And so we always make that about politics, like 
we're going to elect the great triumphant king who's going to cause revival in the land. But the reality is God is just saying, be prayerful. Be prayerful, people. Be prayerful. You want revival? Be prayerful. Ask for it. Plead for it. Um, there's a, a book and a, and a pastor named Leonard Ravenhill. Some of you might know the name. Um, he was, I don't know exactly when Leonard died. I think it was in the 80s or 90s. And he wrote many books about revival. And I don't know if he would say it's the theme of his books, but I would say it's the theme of his books is prayer. You can have masterful speech. You can preach in ways that are unbelievably powerful. You can have massive uh, buildings filled to the max with thousands of people at a Billy Graham crusade. And if prayer is not happening, there will be absolutely nothing for the fruit of it. Because God will get the glory. It is his to own and not ours. And if we think that we have built a chariot that will save the people, he will not fill it. We must be dependent upon prayer. Paul was dependent on prayer. We must be dependent on prayer. And so that is the first baseline of what's going on. But Paul doesn't say, pray for this for you, right? He says, for me, right? Where he's at, in prison, pray for open doors, pray for clarity of speech. And then he says this to the Colossians. You, Colossians, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time or redeeming the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. This is the same sort of thing that Paul is asking for prayer for. He is now commanding the Colossians to do. Okay, so this is the twofold thing about what we pray to God for. We pray to God to do these things, and then we act in faith that he actually is doing these things. Okay? Think of something like Goliath, David. You read the story of David and Goliath, and it's full of prayer. David relying on God to kill the giant who is opposing God's people. And David calling out and saying, God, you're the only one who can make this giant fall. But David also went and he got the stones and he stood in the field and he swung the sling and then he hit the giant with a rock. He actually did the work even though he called upon God to be the one working. And this is exactly what we do. We ask God to open the doors and to give clarity of speech and then we work and work to walk in wisdom with gracious speech, salty with the gospel, Because we believe that God will answer the prayer for open doors and give us clear speech that will answer everyone according to what they need. We pray for it and then we act in faith for it. And we can't divorce those two. We can't be those who hide behind our prayer basket or our prayer closet and say, we have prayed and the Lord hasn't done. We have have sent up the prayers and God has not answered we, we must do both. We must do both. We must act in faith, believing that God will do the things we have asked him to do. Because God desires men to be saved everywhere. Everywhere. And if we're praying for that, God will answer us. And so let's act. Let's act like he wants us to believe these things. 
But this idea of walking in wisdom toward outsiders requires a few things of us, right? The first thing is to think of people who are outside of Christ as outsiders. The, the mistake we make in, in usually leading up to the gospel is thinking that outsiders should act like insiders. Okay? That's a mistake we make. We think what we want is some cleaned up folks who sort of need the gospel, who won't monkey up the pews too much, and that's who we want in our church. We want people with a good living. We want people with well-behaved children. We want people with no problems. And that's who we want. We don't want anyone who doesn't look like an outsider. We, we want insider-looking people. And so what often passes for church growth is simply church hopping. Right? That's what we all want is a bunch of people who already know how to act and behave so they don't cause too many problems. And so the gospel can just kind of float along without any hiccups. That's what we want. We don't want outsiders. And yet, that's the whole deal, is that anyone who is outside of Christ is an outsider. They don't love the law of God. They don't believe the law of God. They don't think it's good. They don't think it's right. They don't think it's true. And so obviously, they're not going to act like any of those things are right. They will have unruly children. They will have problems. They will have wrong beliefs. They will say things that are utterly false all the time. They are outsiders. We have to recognize this as being true. We do not want to just simply assume people from another culture and act like they should know all the rules. Walking in wisdom toward outsiders is making the best use of the time, redeeming the time, is trying to convince them that these things are actually true. The gospel is actually true. And here's the thing that happens. This is true across the board. If you don't love the law of God, and someone says to you, the law of God is good, and it says to you, repent, that doesn't sit well with people. It doesn't sit well with us, and we're here every Sunday. We don't like to be told to repent. Those outside really don't like to be told to repent. And so here's the thing that Paul, I think, is calling our attention to. Remember back just a few verses. He says, Pray for open doors for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for which I am in prison. He absolutely links the fact that he is suffering with an open door to preach the gospel. Open doors for the gospel, and that's why I'm here. Because of an open door. When Paul goes to Jerusalem and all the people say, Don't come to Jerusalem, they're going to bind you and send you to Rome. And he says, I've got to come to Jerusalem because I'm supposed to go to Rome because that's where the gospel needs to go. The open door of Paul was suffering for the gospel. Okay? Now think about this in the context of outsiders. What we tend to think, what we tend to think, is anyone who is not outside the church, who, anyone who's outside the church should, should absolutely never be offended by anything we do, anything we say. 
Because we're nice. We're nice people. That's what we think Christians are, nice people. Christians should be nice, but we have something that is utterly, totally offensive all the time to anyone who does not belong to the house of God, and it is the gospel. And it is not nice to those outside of Christ. In fact, Paul says that the aroma of the gospel is death to those who are perishing. That when they smell the gospel, it smells like death to them. Death of their lifestyle, death of everything they love and think is good and right and true. And they don't like it. So when we think what it means to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming the time, making the best use of time, we're basically saying open door for the gospel is suffering. Walking in wisdom and redeeming the time is looking for ways in which we may have an opportunity to suffer for the gospel. Which means, basically, you're not looking to make best friends with people by never trying to offend them with the gospel. You're trying to redeem the time. That the world is perishing. And it's perishing moment by moment. And none of us are guaranteed the next moment. And to redeem the time is to bring the end, death, right to the doorstep of those who we know. To take it from this thing that lives out here in the ether that we never like to talk about. Remember two weeks ago, or I guess it was just last week, Jesus, after feeding the 5,000, says, death is coming for all of you in the middle of what he's talking about. He just, it's out there, we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to think about it. Bring it right up to the doorstep of whoever you're talking to and redeem the time. Now, this idea of open doors, suffering, what causes suffering, bringing the gospel to bear on the conversation will cause suffering. You will not make friends this way, but you will win people to Christ this way. And then they will become your brother and your sister. This is not an easy thing to do. I am, by nature, you may disagree with me, not given to confrontation. I like people to like me. I like people to like me. It's fun to be liked. It is fun not to be hated. I've been hated for lots of bad things in my life, which I regret. And I've been hated by a few good things that I've done in my life. I like people not to, not, not to despise me. I like to, I like to have friends everywhere I go. You know, one of the things that I think God does for people like me is he gets us out of our hometown. You don't have that option unless you move away. You know all these people that you've known your whole lives who don't know the gospel. And you are friends with them. And now you have this weight on you that death comes for all men and death comes for your friends whom you have known for 50 or 60 years who's outside the gospel and you can have a nice cup of coffee with and you can chat it up and you can go 
right here on the surface of everything that matters. And then you can say that we pray that God would grow the church and we pray that God would make us something and we pray that God would... And then every conversation you have is right here. I know the pressure of not wanting to go anywhere below that because you know as soon as you do, it's going to cause problems. It's going to cause problems. I know this very well. Okay, I have a very good friend that I grew up with, my best friend, whom I have loved now for 20-plus years. And in high school, we were inseparable. We were in different sports, in different activities, but there was rarely a time when we were not together on the weekends for four years. We went to college. He was a year ahead of me. He abandoned everything that I knew of the gospel and became everything that is totally and utterly pagan. I would go to visit him. We would talk. After college was over, I ended up living with him for a year. A year and a half, something like that. And so we were always talking about things. And here I was, this guy who, whose life was absolutely a wreck, but wanted to follow God, wanted to lead go into ministry at some point. And so this question come, came at one point because I was avoiding the difficult conversations. And so this guy had to bring it up. And he said, would you let me be a member of your church if you were the pastor? And I had a choice. I had a choice, right? Keep it here. Or actually do something redemptive with the time. And so I said, no, I wouldn't. And he said, why not? I said, because you're not a Christian. He said, what do you mean I'm not a Christian? I said, you don't, you don't think you're a sinner in need of saving? He said, well, I know the gospel. And he does. He probably knows the, the technical stuff of the gospel better than most. I said, it's not enough to know it. It's that you actually have to believe it. And you actually have to live it. And you don't. And then he said, do you think I'm going to hell then? And I said, yeah. And it was basically at that moment that I realized almost every other conversation I've ever had with this guy was completely worthless. That we have never actually done this with one another. I've never tried to redeem my time with one of my best friends. He is still not a believer. We see each other every couple of years. I've preached the funerals now of his sister, both of his grandmothers, and his mother. It is very difficult to suffer for the sake of Christ. He is one of my most dearly loved people in my entire life, and we have no relationship at this point. I see him every couple of years when I preach a funeral. I'm calling on you to do the same. To have faith for this. I'm bad at it. I tell you this story because it's like my one triumph in this area. 
And it did not end with fruit. I mean, it hasn't yet. Perhaps God one day will redeem him. But it's been more than a decade now since that conversation. If we're going to trust that God would do something here in Jasper with us at this church, we must pray. We must pray. Open doors, clear words. And then we have got to be willing, got to be willing to walk in wisdom and redeem the time. And to suffer. And you will suffer. You will absolutely lose friends if you do this sort of thing. It will not be pleasant. You will not be the most loved person on the block. But, but, God, maybe, just maybe, will actually begin working and doing something if we are faithful to pray and faithful to act. Now, you might think that I'm out of line with this sort of thing. Um, Verse 6 says, let your speech always be gracious. And we tend to have this, I don't know what you would call it, sentimental view of what gracious speech is. We tend to think it's just not cursing, not being brash, not being overtly mean. That's what gracious speech is. But think of what grace is in the face of Jesus Christ. What is grace? What happened? What is the mark of grace? It is the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. One of the the most detestable act in the history of all mankind is the most gracious thing that has ever happened on the face of the earth. And it was a sacrifice. It was a giving himself up for. And so what is gracious speech? Gracious, Gracious speech is not just soft words, nothing hard. It is a giving yourself up, a sacrifice, a willingness to die. Now, I've said it, and you, you may just not believe it, because you'd think of me as a guy who's just like very comfortable being bold. But listen, there are hundreds of things probably thousands if I'm actually being realistic, that happened in the first year and a couple months of me being this pastor that I have refused to be gracious in my speech. With you, with people outside, because I think I should say this. Because they need this. And then I don't. And then we move along in the conversation and nobody gets mad. And then I think two weeks later, boy, I really should have said something. And then I don't. And the conversation moves along. And nothing gets said. And nobody gets mad. This is not just me asking you to do what is difficult. It's me saying I, too, have to do the difficult things. And so we must, we must pray for each other in this. That we would redeem the time. That we would actually do something that matters with our words. 
We can fill it. Boy, can we fill our time, can't we? The news, the weather, the this, the that, the gossip. the Boy, we can fill the time. And not an ounce of it is redemptive. Not an ounce of it. And I think of it all the time. And I fail to do it all the time. Let us be repenting of this kind of stuff. Let us not be a church that's marked out by just blathering along, the same blather that everyone else blathers, but actually going to people and saying, Do you know? Do you know that eternity rests in this moment, right now, and that you have no part of the kingdom? There is no one that I have ever met that is bold enough to do this without the help of God. No one. We all need God's help with this. So, as we think about what the gospel will look like, what evangelism will look like in this coming year, in these next few months, don't put your hope in Christianity Explored. Don't put your hope in this seven-week thing that we're hoping to do. Put your hope in God. Pray to him to open doors so that you might suffer and redeem that time. Walk in wisdom. And then actually do it. Pray for it and then actually do it. That friend, that person, that neighbor, actually do it. And then God, in his infinite kindness, may not give you a friend that you can live here with, but may give you a brother or a sister whom you will spend eternity with. And then we will give all glory to the God of all glory, who redeemed us through the Son and saves us. And we must, we must rely on him for these things. I'm going to close just thinking about this. So Chrysostom is a guy, John Chrysostom. He's called the golden-tongued preacher. He was preaching about 150 A.D. Okay, so we're talking ancient Greek guy. He has a sermon on this text. And if you think this idea of just being agreeable all the time without actually doing anything with your speech is new, it's not. So this is what he wrote in the 2nd century A.D. Well, he didn't write it. He preached it. It's possible to just be simply agreeable. And he said, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what gracious speech is. Gracious speech is not agreeableness. And it's not a new sin. It's old. It's what this book was written for right here. To confront us. To, 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 to actually bring to light the fact that all we are ever doing is just trying to be agreeable. And never, never entering into eternity with people. And making the best use of our time knowing how we ought to answer each person, right?
So, it's sobering. It's sobering. This is the next few verses of Colossians. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. So Tychicus has been sent back with this letter. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Onesimus, you know this name. Onesimus is the slave who ran away from this guy named Philemon. There's a book coming up. Philemon had a slave whose name was Onesimus who ran away to Rome, who heard the gospel, believed it, was saved, and then got sent back to his old master. I say this because you have no idea what God may do through your salty speech, your gracious speech. He may, however, redeem Onesimus and send him back to his former slave owner Philemon and reconcile an impossible situation, something that, earthly speaking, doesn't get fixed Nobody reconciles runaway slave and slave owner. You know what happened to runaway slaves who got sent back to their masters in the south? A lot of them died by beatings or just getting shot when they got back on the property. That's how we reconcile that kind of thing, earthly speaking. That's not what happened. When risk was taken by Onesimus, to go back to his former master. That's not what happened. They were redeemed. They were reconciled. Things were better in the gospel. So, I want to encourage you. I don't want to just lay this down and say, like, you know, feel sorry for yourselves. God redeems things that are irredeemable all the time. And so when we think about what it is to redeem the time, and we think about how we don't do it, God does it all the time. He redeems the irredeemable. Have faith that he will fix these things. Redeem the time. Make use of it. God always is redeeming things. And there is always unbelievable hope if we just have a small bit of faith to follow him into these things. Let's stand this morning. We're going to sing and remind ourselves of the grace which is ours in Jesus.